HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The future of farms is the future of food. No Farms, No Future is a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Listen today. So what do you think the future of food is? Induction cooking. Say more. Everything will be induction. Induction walks, induction pans, induction pots, induction Dutch ovens, induction, man. I think that the future of food in Britain is going to have to rely more and more on locally grown seasonal food production. Brexit and the pandemic have both put a strain on the amount of food that is being brought into the country, with container ships being held up at the border. These factors, combined with inflation, mean that the real-time cost of that food has increased massively and more and more families are having to rely on food banks. I'm Jeannie from Atlanta, Georgia, and I believe the future of food is culinary diversity and dietary inclusivity. So we're going to see a lot of flavors from around the world executed in ways that everyone will be able to enjoy them. The future of food in the backcountry is really exciting. We're seeing a shift to regenerative agriculture and sustainable plants and products from companies like Backpackers Pantry and Patagonia Provisions. People now have the autonomy to choose foods that have the minimal impact on the environment. I only recently moved to L.A., but my guess is maybe something combining like two things L.A. is really good at, which is gentrification and street food. Fancy restaurants might take those concepts and serve you, you know, like a street food hot dog for $40 in a restaurant. You just heard what the future of food might look like all across the country and even across the pond. The future of food is not a faraway horizon. It's unfolding before our eyes. Choices we make today will impact tomorrow. The action we do or don't take to address climate change will affect generations to come. Can food distribution and labor rights be democratized? Or will power continue to consolidate in the hands of the few? In our third and final installment of our mini-series about the future of food, we take you to four locations on the front line of our rapidly changing world. And depending on how things shake out, these communities could impact us all. These stories can be anxiety-provoking or offer a glimmer of hope. The outcome hinges on how we respond. I'm Dylan Hoyer, and this is Meet in Three.
Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. When we think of food and the future, our ideas tend to skew towards creative problem solving and advancement. But for many, the future of food revolves around a more fundamental question. Will we be able to access food? And for how much longer? Ellie Katz explores how this question plays out in Occupied Palestine. Ronnie Perlman has volunteered as a peace activist at Israeli checkpoints for over 20 years now. She is part of Moxham Watch, a group of civilian Israeli women who monitor soldiers and document human rights violations at the checkpoints that stud the borders between Israel and Palestine. There are many areas where the villages are in Palestine, on the Palestinian side, and the fields and the plantations and the orchards are on Israeli side, so that a Palestinian needs a permit to go and work in his field. And not only does he need a permit to go in his field, he's also told when can he go. These areas are called seam zones. Caught between the West Bank wall and the Israeli border, seam zones are under Israeli military control, but include about 15% of some of Palestine's most fertile agricultural land. The Palestinian farmers and shepherds whose land falls within or along these seam zones must apply for and receive the correct permits in order to access it. Think, a lengthy application process and regularly updated proof of land ownership. Permits change for different access points, different crops, different harvest seasons. Permits may be revoked at any point, often with little or no explanation. If a farmer obtains the necessary permits, and according to the UN, only about 58% of permit applications are granted, farmers can access their land only at the discretion of the Israeli government. Here's Ronnie again. Sometimes it's only twice a year. Sometimes it's every day. Then the, the agricultural gate, you know, the checkpoint opens for half an hour and it opens again six hours later. So if something happens on the field that the tractor broke down or the machine. He can't go back to have it fixed. He has to wait when the gate gets opened again. And then you are allowed to go to your field, but not the whole family, only one member, two members, three members. And also, that's also, you know, depends on what permit you get. There are millions of rules, millions of the most ridiculous rules that the Palestinians have to be aware of. There are several instances of farmers whose land was once within walking distance and is now accessible only by a multi-kilometer journey to the nearest checkpoint. In one account from human rights organization, Bit Salem, a farmer traveled 20 kilometers each way to the nearest checkpoint with his horse and cart to reach his family's olive orchards only 60 meters from his home on the other side of the fence. Upon reaching the checkpoint one day, Soldiers there said, go back. No carts allowed today. It's difficult to overstate how complicated a Palestinian farmer's life can be, both inside the seam zone and out. Farmers attempting to harvest and shepherds grazing their animals face regular attacks from Israeli settlers living illegally in the West Bank. In most areas, 
Palestinians are not allowed to drill for wells. Some are completely unable to access their lands. Others have seen their orchards, sheds, barns, wells, roads, and irrigation systems destroyed by settler violence or barrier construction. The United Nations estimates that since Israeli settlements began in 1967, nearly one million olive trees have been destroyed on Palestinian land. This doesn't account for stolen or damaged olive harvests. Currently, olives account for about 60% of all cultivated land in occupied Palestine, and in the seam zones, olive yields are 60% lower than those in the West Bank. But more than just harvests and economic yields are at risk. Olives and olive oil are of deep cultural and historical significance. They are also critical to Palestinian cuisine. And that cuisine is critical to maintaining the Palestinian identity that is constantly threatened. The last thing that people lose is food habits. They lose the language, they lose religion, but food habits is the last thing to give up on. But the future of food for these farmers is precarious. When you're standing on the other side of a fence, forcibly separated from the lands that your family has cultivated for centuries, the future has a different ring to it. The future looks more like tomorrow, next week. Who will be allowed to pass through then? And what will they be able to bring back with them? In this next story, fish farmers still have access to their land. But it's far from what it once was. We head down to the bayou to understand how climate change could alter Louisiana's community and economy forever. Sam Burroughs takes a closer look at Louisiana's disappearing wetlands. We have a problem with our coasts literally vanishing before our eyes. Um, our state has lost uh, about 2,000 square miles of its coast, mostly coastal wetlands, but also coastal beaches, um, since the 1930s. Every 100 minutes, we lose a football field of our state. Uh, it changes from wetlands into open water. That was James Karst, the Director of Communications and Marketing at the Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana. Louisiana's wetlands are home to a generations-old fishing community, but the bayou is quickly disappearing. Issues like natural disaster, pollution, canal building, and, of course, climate change only exacerbate these losses. Climate change intensifies the devastation wrought by natural disasters as sea levels rise and hurricanes become more frequent and powerful. Our wetlands serve as a buffer um, against hurricanes. They help to weaken hurricanes as they come ashore. At the same time, these wetlands receive the brunt of damage caused by hurricanes. So they're saving us and being destroyed at the same time. Another problem for the wetlands are the many levees built along the Mississippi River. These levees act as a barrier to protect millions of citizens in their homes from devastating floods. However, they also prevent water and sediment from overflowing into the wetlands, depriving the environment of new nutrients every year. To solve this problem, the state is working on building massive gate-like structures into the river's levee system that they can artificially open and close, introducing fresh water and sediment into the wetlands. However, James noted the complexity of this solution. They will build land, they will help our wetlands and our communities, but... 
Um, at the same time, they're going to have short-term negative effects on fisheries. And then the other wrinkle to that is that the fisheries face almost certain collapse without these sediment diversions. So we're faced with the problem of do we want to try to wring a few more years out of our fisheries the way they are and then, then have them cease to exist? Or do we build these large-scale uh, sediment diversions that are going to have a short-term negative effect on fisheries, but will have uh, long-term better outcomes for everyone and for shrimp and for oysters, uh, for alligators? The sediment diversions will have short-term effects on different marine life in the wetlands due to changes in salinity and the level of open water, forcing them to adapt. However, saving the wetlands is critical because they aren't only protecting Louisiana from hurricanes, they're also a huge part of its economy. The bayou is home to a generations-old fishing community filled with tradition. Hurricanes have caused a significant amount of uh, destruction to fishing communities, to fishing vessels, to fishing boats. Uh, you know, they wiped out oysters, wiped out oyster boats. There are people who have fished here for generations and whose careers and their communities are at risk uh, if we are unable to solve these problems. Louisiana's wetlands are home to Cajun cuisine, a cuisine dating back to the 18th century that mixes influences from Spanish, French, and West African cooking. It relies heavily on locally sourced ingredients available in the wetlands like crawfish, alligator, and shrimp. However, Louisiana natives aren't the only people reliant on the bayou's bounty. You know, if you eat shrimp uh, anywhere in the country, you know, there's a good chance that that shrimp came from Louisiana. According to a study by the National Fisheries Institute, shrimp is America's favorite seafood, with the average American eating 4.6 pounds per year. So saving the wetlands is not only crucial for the fishing community of southern Louisiana, but for the future of American dinner plates. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break. The future of farming in America is uncertain. Our farmers are aging and selling off their land. But the pandemic has revealed the importance of local farms as the national and international supply chain continues to be disrupted. I mean, it's not like most farmers have a company-sponsored retirement plan. I'm Hannah Forden, HRN's Program Manager, and I want to tell you about a new show. Hosted by John Piotti, the President and CEO of American Farmland Trust, and produced in collaboration with Heritage Radio Network, this is No Farms, No Future. There is a new generation of small farmers. We're here to tell their stories, share knowledge, and dig deep into the future of American farming. From land stewardship, we are losing 2,000 acres of farmland a day. The price of land is often so high that it's really hard to get started. To cracks in the supply chain. By the time I go shopping every single day, there's no meat left to feed my family. The future of farms is the future of food. Subscribe to No Farms, No Future, a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Find us wherever you like to listen. Welcome back to Meet in 3. Our next case study takes us to Buffalo, New York. More specifically, 933 Elmwood Avenue, a.k.a. the first Starbucks in the nation to unionize. 
Zoe Denkla digs deeper to understand how this one story made history and what the implications are for the future of workers in the food service industry. There's a real comfort in getting coffee from Starbucks. Almost anywhere I go, I can walk in and know exactly what to expect. How tall obviously means small. The distinct dark, almost burnt taste of the coffee and how those croissants that come out of plastic bags aren't half bad if heated up. But just last month, one Starbucks location broke away from the pack. On December 9th, the Elmwood location of Starbucks voted to unionize, making them the first out of roughly 9,000 Starbucks nationwide. These 19 employees have sparked a national movement. The very next week, dozens of locations across the U.S. petitioned to do the same. It's even gone beyond Starbucks, inspiring workers at REI and Amazon. With this movement growing rapidly, I wanted to hear about what it took to become unionized Starbucks number one. So I reached out to their employees to learn more about their experience firsthand. My name is Bo Dispenza. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. Uh, I've been a partner at Starbucks for going on two years now. I have worked at the Elmwood location, I want to say since September, so like six-ish months. Prior to that, I worked at a different store. I go to school for special education. When Bo says partner, they mean employee. This is not Bo's lingo. It's the official term Starbucks uses to refer to all their employees in an effort to, quote-unquote, create environments where every employee is welcome and feels a sense of belonging. Honestly, I really, really love the partners. You meet a lot of amazing people. And it's just a really fun job. You feel like a chemist making all these drinks, trying to trying to figure out what tastes good, what tastes bad. As much as Bo enjoys their coworkers or concocting the perfect cortado, work is work. And the food service industry is tough, made even tougher during COVID. It just doesn't make sense the amount we're getting paid when we make a $10 drink in in two seconds, like, and they want us to be quick, like, is the amount of work that we're doing, is the amount of profit that we are bringing in worth our pay? I mean, you're in and out sick. It's too hard to constantly be like, oh, no, I'm going to be out for two weeks. Will I be able to to really afford my my bills? There was a point in time where we were just extremely short-staffed. It was just too busy People were not respecting, like, the space. These complaints just became part of the job for Bo. All until they received a text from an unknown number, someone from another Starbucks location in Buffalo, asking if they'd be interested in unionizing. I really think that this is a push in the right direction. Um, It really lines up with what I believe in. I, as a person, have always been very pro-union. Even so, they had a lot of uncertainty about what unionizing would actually mean for them. How would it change their job? What were its benefits? I wanted to understand these questions, too. So I called Shelly Stewart to get a better picture of what unions accomplish. Shelly works at a think tank called the Aspen Institute and spends her time thinking about the future of work. There's kind of an inherent power imbalance between workers and employers. Uh, Employers have money, they have power. Uh, Workers are typically dependent on their wages to survive. So these two sides are not kind of coming to the table on equal footing. And some things like, like unions can balance that out. But 
have struggled uh, in, in recent decades to really have an impact and that power imbalance has just gotten worse. You know, a union is just an, an organization of workers who come together to work for better <clears throat> and safer conditions. Uh, and when formally recognized, unions are able to negotiate contracts with employers on behalf of workers. Uh, and that's really where their impact on power comes in. Uh, it addresses that imbalance between workers and employers uh, and so allows workers together to collectively bargain with their employers and come to a contract that works for both sides. Sounds straightforward, but only 10% of all workers in the U.S. are unionized. And among private corporations, it's only 6.3. This is no accident. Many corporations are actively against unions. You may remember last April when Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, attempted to unionize. The company spammed their phones with text to vote no, papered bathroom stalls with anti-union posters. They may have even sped up traffic lights leaving the factory parking lot, trying to shorten the amount of time cars spent parked next to each other. This supposedly discouraged after-hours chit-chat for fear that it would lead to union organizing. Countering union busting takes a lot of low-key community building. Here's Bo again. When all this started, it was very hush-hush, very on the DL. Everything almost happened all at once. It was crazy. It was like murmurs, and then it was like, okay, it's happening. The way that that really started was by making friendships, seeing who was interested in what. They may not have slowed down traffic lights, but... Starbucks did not embrace Elmwood's partners' attempt to become legitimate partners. Within a few days, Starbucks flew in its troops. Managers and executives from all over the country came to quote-unquote help and support workers. One morning, employees even came in to find the company's vice president sweeping their floors and taking out the trash. It was a lot. It was a lot. I'm not going to lie. They would just get people sometimes for union-busting meetings who are like these high-up officials in Starbucks, because it would just be them throwing people at us to be like, hey, this person is here to support you. When you have all these really high up people watching you all the time, you're going to feel like you're not entitled to, you know, have that fun or talk or, you know, you feel like you're constantly having to find some type of work to do, which was very difficult when we had six other people trying to help us out with all the work we had to do. There were a few partners who kind of got really intimidated and they ended up you know, temporarily switching stores just because it was so overwhelming for them. The influx of higher-ups weren't just there to make extra chestnut praline lattes. These guests held mandatory weekly listening sessions and strongly discouraged employees from voting yes to unionization. So why are companies so threatened? The simple answer is, when given a seat at the table, workers ask for more. According to the Economic Policy Institute, Unionized workers make 11.2% higher wages, have 11.4% greater compensation for PTO, and are 18.3% more likely to have health care coverage. These increased benefits no doubt impact employers, but just how much of a hit do companies take? These stats are not easy to come by. Research is often outdated, and what is out there feels unreliable. Unions seem to either irrevocably ruin business or have no negative impact whatsoever. 
A study published in the Journal of Labor Economics found that unions do take a toll on profit, but not in any statistically significant way. What does change is profit distribution. Think of it like a pie. The size doesn't noticeably change, but workers now get a bigger slice, inevitably meaning employer slices are cut down a bit. In spite of all corporate Starbucks efforts, the Alma location managed to successfully unionize with a vote of 19 yes to 8 no. So why did this one store with 27 employees make national news? Here's Shelly again. Starbucks starting to unionize and Starbucks workers fighting to unionize is really noteworthy because, for one, it's a national brand that pretty much everyone recognizes. uh, And it's also a major chain employing food service workers. And that is really important because food service is one of the least unionized industries. Uh, About 1.2% of food service workers uh, are, are in unions. It's an industry that employs a huge number of people, one of the largest sectors in our economy, one of the fastest growing, one that employs disproportionately women and people of color uh, and workers that face really difficult jobs. These are the, the types of jobs where some of the need for better conditions are great, uh, but there hasn't been a precedent of successful unionization campaigns, which the case of Starbucks promises to be. This could mean a shift towards greater unionization among food service workers, maybe even beyond. But this is by no means a guarantee. It's a glimmer of hope rather than a major impact on union numbers. Even if you factored in every location that's been inspired by Bo's store, unionized employees only make up about 0.002% of all Starbucks employees. There's a world in which this dies down. There's a handful of unionized Starbucks stores and things start returning to the way they've been for far too long. But there's also a world in which this is a turning point in which the efforts of workers in Buffalo and the increasing number of Starbucks outlets across the country not only lead to changes in their stores, but to workers in other stores, at other chains, in other industries to realize their potential power in coming together and forming a union and then taking that union to to negotiate for better conditions. Here are some of the things that Bo and their colleagues hope to accomplish at the Elmwood location. We're going to start our bargaining with what we already have and just go up from there. When people pay with their card, they literally cannot tip at all, which is cutting back on our tips a lot. We're trying to get that so that way we can be tipped better. You know, just just being safer around COVID. Can we get proper masks? Can we get the KN95s? We're trying to make, you know, sick time. We're trying to have a little bit more forgiveness with, you know, like financial help with people's rent and their bills they might have to pay. I really think like seeing how well retrospectively we are doing and how well we hope to continue to do does in fact inspire other companies there's still definitely a lot to be done we are still you know working on our bargaining and we've we've got a lot to accomplish but you know we've we are in the door we are in the room like we are here 
The pandemic has been tough on both restaurants and their workers in different ways. In our final story, we take a look at how COVID is shifting the landscape, literally, for eaters and business owners. Julian Smedley brings us to the streets of New York City. Take a second to imagine the New York City of the future. What comes to mind? Flying cars? Chrome skyscrapers? How about outdoor dining structures? NYC inevitably draws your attention up towards its iconic skyline. But if you turn your gaze towards the street level these days, you'll notice things look different. In particular, you'll see that the city's famously jam-packed restaurants have spilled out into the streets in search of fresh air. During the COVID-19 pandemic, outdoor dining structures have become part of the New York City landscape. But are they here to stay after the pandemic ends? In a word, yes. I know that um, Mayor Adams is very committed to keeping outdoor dining in existence throughout the pandemic and beyond. That's Alexina Cather, who co-led Mayor Eric Adams' food policy transition team, the first of its kind in the city's history. The transition team had about 60 members split into four groups, one each focusing on economic resilience, food assistance, institutional food, and urban agriculture. When it comes to restaurants, that first branch, economic resilience, is most important. You know, I hate using the word pivot, and I'm sure every restaurant owner, operator, employee hates this word too, but, you know, they've been so nimble and on their feet about how to create other revenue streams. And so any way that the administration can support that um, safely, I think, is something that we're thinking through. Say by making it easier for restaurants to deliver to-go cocktails, which New York Governor Kathy Hochul again made legal in December of 2022. In the case of outdoor dining structures, there are a few other things to consider. So I think making sure that, like, there's some, you know, ordinances around how things are maintained and how they're built and making sure that they're safe for employees who go in and out and also diners who are dining in those structures. Um, I think figuring out ways to get, um, you know, heaters is something that's like would really make it more equitable. The city has instituted its open restaurants program, which is set to be in full effect by early 2023. The program will codify the outdoor dining process including planning regular inspections and dispersing loans and grants to erect structures and provide heaters. The ins and outs of NYC zoning laws aren't the most shiny or futuristic topic. But consider what easy access to well-built, well-heated outdoor spaces would mean for dining in NYC. It has the potential to change the city's rhythm of life. Also, as someone who spent a little time in European metropolises, I appreciate more outdoor cafe seating in the summertime. But with the amount of electricity they use, are heaters a permanent solution in the cold winter months? It's a good question. I mean, I haven't heard anything about, okay, in post-covered world, we'll get rid of these heaters. You know, I think it's more like, okay, in a post-covered world, can we roll out, uh, I mean, composting for restaurants? Instead of rolling things back that are working and that bring a lot of joy to a city that's been pretty hard hit by COVID, what can we do to not offset, but to make other areas better. The idea is to incentivize a more sustainable way of operating a restaurant, so that when restaurateurs inevitably have to pivot, the options in front of them are better for their bottom line, their guests' health, and the environment. The same idea applies to vegan bodega sandwiches, of which Mayor Adams is a big proponent, and urban agriculture. The end goal is not to have New York City, you know, grow all its own food. Like, many of us would argue that that's never, ever, ever going to be possible. Can we imagine a city where, you know, 
the, the rooftops are all green and there's community gardens that are thriving and every every school has either grow gardens in its classrooms or access to an outdoor outdoor garden and that those greens are at least ending up in the salad because when kids grow food they eat it you know research shows if advocates like alexina have their way nyc's future will be less chrome and silver and more green and brown And maybe in this future, you'll find yourself sitting comfortably in a warm wooden structure in the dead of winter, eating squash grown by the school around the corner. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Sarah Mathis, Sam Burroughs, Ellie Katz, Zoe Denkla, and Julian Smedley. Meet in Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet in Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. Please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>